This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, November 25th, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. These days, the Electoral College is largely presented as a massive, unwieldy obstacle to more democracy. So how has it worked historically? And who were the people who went rogue and became what I like to call conscientious electors? Emily Conrad is author of a new book, The Faithless, The Untold Story of the Electoral College. In 2016, I believe it was October 2016, I was uh, in Utah for a Cato Institute event, and I had a chance to sit down uh, with Senator Mike Lee of Utah about uh, the Electoral College. And of course, he's a former prosecutor, uh, himself somebody who's studied the Constitution extensively. And I asked him, what prevents uh, an elector in the Electoral College from deciding, I don't care what the state legislature said. I don't care what voters told the state legislature to do. I'm going to vote for somebody else uh, when I go to Washington, D.C. and put in my vote with the Electoral College. And he said, absolutely nothing. I mean, he didn't say nothing. He said the words, absolutely nothing. And so it We've had a Supreme Court case more recently that says states may punish uh, so-called rogue electors. I like to think of them as conscientious electors. Um, But all of this goes to the core, uh, as you were saying before we even started recording, most Americans at at the most basic level do not understand what their votes for president actually mean? What substantial impact they actually have? Why is that a problem? Well, it's it's a problem because we have this system in place. Um, and the system, the rules of the system are, in, in my view, they're, they're actually quite clear. Um, now, unfortunately, they differ from state to state. Um, the Electoral College differs state to state, which makes it slightly difficult as a researcher to really say this is what the Electoral College is. But at the end of the day, everybody's experience and every voter's experience in the United States is remarkably similar because on election day, we're not voting for the president. We're voting for electors who then choose the president on our behalf. Um, and, and that's what it is. Um, to, to act like it's something different than that um, is, is actually factually incorrect. Um, but you take a look at our news media and a lot of, um, and even civics education, they don't quite explain what uh, the mechanisms behind the Electoral College or how our president is selected. I was about to ask, uh, how does the news media handle this? How well do they perform at making clear uh, that when you vote for president, uh, that that is a right that you have in a sense. It's not really even a right as we understand constitutional rights. It is a delegated power from state legislatures. Th- that is an interesting thing. And it is certainly coming out to play in 2020. Um, what's interesting for me about the Electoral College is that you take a look and every single year you have these these debates around it. And then almost immediately after all the debates just kind of dissipate and they go away and then they're brought up again four years later. You did talk about the Supreme Court cases that really made um, that was really groundbreaking whenever uh, we saw uh, Chafela versus Washington and Colorado versus Baca. But in some ways, it made the system even more complicated. 
Already, if you take a look at the Electoral College, all these different states have different ways by which they select their electors. And then in some states, you have to the two different major political parties. Democrats may select their electors differently than the Republican Party in the state. They have uh, different uh, mechanisms, different laws behind saying who can be an elector, or who cannot become an elector. And then now you have, with, after the Supreme Court ruling, you ha now even have different laws which say a faithless elector can or cannot be. Um, or as you like to say, a, a rogue elector. Um, it, it's extremely interesting because and now in some states, you have an elector who cannot, who will, if they vote faithlessly, will be removed. And then and then maybe in the neighboring state, the vote will be cast and they will be fined. And then maybe in the state next to that, the vote will be cast and they won't be fined. Um, so now after the Supreme Court cases, what you start to see is that the Electoral College is even more disjointed than before. And for me, as a researcher, it becomes even more difficult to really get a sense of how is this system actually working? Um, because there really isn't, besides the Constitution saying electors can't hold work for the federal government, there's not really much else other than that that says some, somebody can or cannot be an elector. You wrote an entire book here about uh, what I like to call conscientious electors, what other people call rogue electors, <laughs> uh, people who did not... Uh, follow through on the wishes of their state legislatures. Um, what's the most notable story here? That's a really difficult question for me to answer um, because I did interview eight electors and they're both Republicans and Democrats. And interestingly, while their narratives were, were similar in the fact that they all made a choice not to vote for the, the winner of their state's popular vote, um, they had different reasons for doing so. Um, for me, I um, I really enjoyed uh, L.J. Guerra's um, narrative. This was, of course, one of the only. This was the only other female um, that that besides my own, I guess, my own narrative that that is represented in in the book. She was 18 years old when decided to um, when she was chosen as an elector in her congressional district caucus in Washington State. And um, at the time, she was a community college student, and she was just getting involved in politics. And one of the major things that everybody wants to do is go to the national convention. Well, she was from a less privileged background, and she said, there's no way that I could pay to go to the DNC. But being an elector, it's a, being a part of the process, and it's also free to participate in. So she, she ran a campaign, made speeches, was voted in as an elector by her congressional district caucus. And then, um, and then whenever she really was faced over the summer with what it meant to be an elector, she realized that she was kind of in a red district and that maybe many of her constituents would not support Hillary Clinton as their president. So she, as an 18 years old, started going around to local Walmarts and mom and pop shops, conducting her own straw polls. And in that process of just talking to people in her community, she decided um, to vote for Colin Powell instead. And so I thought that this was extremely interesting because she was a young, um, you know, from a not so great background, um, community college student, Hispanic. And it really shows that the Electoral College, we often think it's this um, filled up with a lot of the, the criticisms that it's filled with kind of old, rich white men. I mean, the Electoral College is actually remarkably diverse. And um Almost all of my, my stories and the, the electors, they all are very diverse individuals from Native American activists to 
a former refugee from South Vietnam, uh, very diverse individuals. And these, they were all playing, uh, they were all electors in the Electoral College. So, uh, and it's probably a good moment to uh, dwell on this a bit, but how are they selected? Given given the history of electors, you would, I would think that the that the slate of electors chosen by parties would be faithful members in good standing of the party who are going to do what's expected of them and that that's one of the things that i also assumed starting out um and i was very interested in why would people because i mean Basically, what I knew about the Electoral College is that party faithful would become electors. At least that was my assumption going into it. And I began to think, looking at that 2016, you saw both Republicans and Democrats not vote for the winner of their state popular vote. I began to think, what is happening that the party faithful are willing to do something that seems so futile um, and give up their reputation and standing within, within their party, which they've clearly devoted a lot of time to? So it's it's actually quite interesting, and it differs state by state. Um, basically, some states they 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 are uh, democratically selected within a congressional caucus or state convention, and other states they are selected by the party chairman. Um, so the Republican Party chairman or the Democratic Party chairman, and then in other states, uh, like for example in Pennsylvania, they are selected directly by the candidates themselves or the candidates' teams themselves. So it, it really differs state by state. And yes, it does make a difference. I think that the people who are elected as electors, um, you know, earlier on, feel uh, much more empowered. So out of the eight um, electors that I interviewed, seven of them were elected by their peers to become an elector. Only one of them was appointed there by um, their state uh, chairman. One of the stories that you tell here is about Roger McBride. Yeah. And uh, he is well known to libertarians as a faithless elector, someone who in 1972 decided not to go uh, with his party's wishes. Um, Who was Roger McBride? Well, the Roger McBride was, uh, I I think he's also known for being the the presidential candidate for the Libertarian Party as well. One of the reasons why I chose to to focus on um, his narrative Actually, I was introduced to him through another elector that I covered in my book, uh, Bill Green, and he decided to vote for Ron Paul in 2016 rather than for Donald Trump. And he had uh, experience uh, with Roger McBride and viewed Roger McBride as one of his mentors in the liberty movement with inside the uh, Republican Party. And for me, that was, uh, he said, oh, make sure that you include Roger McBride as as you do your research. And the more I delved into the story of Roger McBride, I was really fascinated. Here you had this individual, you know, very capable individual. And I think that he really put the Libertarian Party on the map. I mean, you took a look at 1972, the Libertarian Party was on maybe, I think it was on two, uh, it was on two states, uh, on two state ballots nationwide. Then all of a sudden in Virginia, you see this vote for the Libertarian ticket. Um, it wasn't even on the uh, the Virginia ballot, so I just could only imagine the the reaction that that probably got from uh, the fellow Republicans and uh, politicos in Virginia. But for for me, what it really showed was that a lot of faithless faithless electors um, is is a very interesting topic because 
in this this vote with that Roger McBride had, it was it also was the first electoral. It was the first time that a uh, homosexual had received a um, an open homos- uh, an openly uh, gay man had received a an electoral college vote. It was the first time that a woman had received an electoral college vote, and it was the first time that a Jewish individual had received an electoral college vote. These were three firsts that were basically pioneered by a faithless elector. And you also saw this again in 2016, where you saw the first uh, two electoral college votes for Native Americans. That was done by Robert Satyakum. He voted for uh, Faith Spotted Eagle and for Winona LaDuke. Um, So it's really interesting. Faithless electors um, have pioneered a lot of firsts, just thinking about our political environment and our political culture. Faithless electors have been constantly pushing the boundary, and then they kind of go kind of under the radar. So this may be the more uncomfortable part because you are a researcher. What do you think of the institution? I think that at the moment, um, it has a lot of challenges moving forward. Um, And the reason I say that is because you take a look um, at what happened in 2016. Basically, every single Republican elector was actively lobbied to change their vote. And as I mentioned before, a lot of these electors are, are normal individuals. They're, the, they're kind of our neighbors, the people. They, these aren't necessarily politicos. And for normal everyday Americans to be electors, to be given that responsibility, that honor, and then to find themselves bombarded, I think that, that that's actually quite problematic. Um, and um, these are publicly elected officials. But we just don't have that cultural, political cognizance of what that is. So, I mean, I, I interviewed these uh, these electors. I mean, so many of them received death threats. Um, they received boxes upon boxes of mail, phone calls at all hours of the night. And as I look ahead to 2020, I could see that also happening again. Um, I think that it that it's problematic um, to not have um, a really a strong public cognizance over who are our electors, what do they do, and how do we treat them, and making sure that that they that they are that they do remain that there is a certain level of safety there. At the end of the day, there are 538 votes for president that actually count. And um, people talked about foreign interference in the last election. I mean, a bad faith domestic uh, foreign actor could easily try to insert themselves in this scenario, especially um, a lot of the individuals that I that I interviewed. I mean, that they're just everyday people. Um, And so I think that that's extremely important moving forward. I don't know when this is going to come out, uh, (laughs) but as of this recording, Uh, The current president of the United States, Donald Trump, is trying to mount challenges to uh, votes, vote totals in uh, a couple of states. Uh, And I guess my my early sense of that, my suspicion is he's trying to influence the electoral college vote. How do you do you think there's any evidence for that? Well, I mean, Donald Trump faced a huge challenge. Uh, a lot of people in 2016 were likewise trying to use the Electoral College vote to um, to keep him from taking office. You had an entire movement called the Hamilton Electors Movement. Um, really, the, the two Supreme Court cases, Chafello versus Washington and, and Colorado versus Baca, those were both uh, Hamilton elective founders of the Hamilton electors, and their entire goal was to keep was to use the electoral college to keep Donald Trump from taking office. 
Um, so if, if that is, uh, you know, he has experience of it working the opposite way. I mean, they were attempting to get 37 ele- Republican electors to defect to a more moderate Republican candidate to deny him the 270 to win. Um, that being said, I mean, when you start taking a look at the Electoral College tallies, getting a lot of faithless electors um, to, to jump ship is extremely difficult. Um, you might be able to get one or two, a handful here or there, people who are wanting to to make uh, their voice heard or their message heard. Um, but what's interesting is that as I was researching in 2016, the more electors were actually lobbied, the more that they were, um, the more that they became more resolute in their beliefs. And um, and so I think that it actually kind of has an opposite in effect in, in a certain way. But there were quite a few people that I've heard uh, that I've I haven't talked to them directly. But in 2016, there were many um, Republicans that were considering defecting um, from Donald Trump. Um, unfortunately, I, I have not been able to interview them. I mean, they're not going to come out and, and share their story. But based off of the other Hamilton electors, they were saying, oh, we're talking to groups um, in different states, including in, in Utah. And I think that that was one of the things, um, whenever you mentioned Mike Lee, why Utah was so interesting. Um, you, you saw Evan McMullen, and he had just a, a, a massive support on the ground. And I think that electors uh, really were uh, cha- fa- faced with a challenge, um, particularly the females who made uh, the female electors who may not have liked Donald Trump as much. Um, but that was, of course, before the Supreme Court rulings. And um, I think that Utah now has pretty strong binding elector laws, is, is my impression. Following up on the on the Supreme Court case, if I understand correctly, the Supreme Court said that states may punish electors. Yes. But to what extent have states done that? Well, there have been laws in the past. So um, basically, the Supreme Court said that state laws to bind electors are not unconstitutional. Um, thereby, you know, if a state doesn't have laws, you can assume that uh, that a faithless vote or a rogue vote is constitutional. And, um, you know, the opposite also proves true. Um, before, you have 30-something states with some sort of binding elector law. Um, now, these laws just might be a fine, um, a fine of $1,000. Um, it might be that your faithless vote will stand, but you may be criminally charged after the fact. And then a few states, 14, uh, actually have laws that can remove a faithless elector during the vote itself. And that is what happened in Minnesota in 2016. You had an elector who wanted to vote for uh, Bernie Sanders, basically voted for Bernie Sanders and was removed. And so, um, so, so it's very interesting to see that. Um, but most states actually don't have the apparatus, the legal apparatus to remove a, a faithless elector, to remove a rogue elector. So um, looking ahead, I think that the, the Supreme Court cases, to me, they, they, it just made the system slightly more complicated. Um, at the same time, it's uh, a lot of people, if you say that, uh, that, that your electors don't have to follow the winner of your state's popular vote, if you ask people um, if they agree with that, just kind of <laughs> ask people on the street, all of them will say that they do not support faithless electors. So, so it's kind of a, it's an interesting thing. And of course, uh, a lot of uh, Democrats uh, really liked uh, the, the Supreme Court um, ruling. 
bindings, uh, faith of binding electors to the state's popular vote because they said, oh, this might just be one step into getting uh, electors bound to the national popular vote. So there was a lot of things going on at that point in time, and which makes the Supreme Court case so interesting when you start to unpack it. How how do you evaluate uh, state level efforts at altering how uh, electoral votes are apportioned? Maine and Nebraska are two states that have their own systems for doing so. Other states have signed on to a, a compact of sorts that will direct uh, their electors at some point in the future, and if enough states sign on. Uh, d- direct their electors to support the winner of the national popular vote. How do you evaluate those those reforms? Well, the the congressional district model um, of the electoral college was actually something that was supported very strongly by Roger McBride. Um, and, um, I think that he was basically thinking that this was a way that you could have, uh, a more, a more plurality of voices within the political system. Um, and, and it is true. What it does is that you saw Trump go to Nebraska, um, for that one electoral college vote in the week before the election. Um, and so it, it is quite interesting whenever you start to think about, um, implementing this district system in the electoral college. And that's one of the things that I, I often mention to people is that just a couple of changes to the Electoral College will, will dramatically change the entire system as we know it. If more states start to implement the district model, um, basically uh, elections become much more competitive. And um, another thing that would happen is that you could see third parties really start to rise up, not to win the election, but just to keep uh, both par- major parties uh, from winning the 270 necessary to win. So it's uh, it, it would something like that would dramatically change the system, and I and I think that there's not enough dialogue behind what what changing what these changes can do. Um, you know, I, I researched kind of what happened in the past um, and what happened in 2016, and of course now that we're into 2020, I'm researching what's happening with this electoral college as well. But you know, one of the things I, I just I focus on um, when people ask me, I tell them just a couple of changes to the Electoral College will dramatically change our, our political climate and our political culture and how we select the president. Emily Conrad is author of The Faithless, The Untold Story of the Electoral College. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.